really is encouraging to me, and I have a lot of fun teaching it. I've done this many times, and I always learn something new. Many of you have already brought up new comments, things to think about. I appreciate that very much. Uh, let's continue looking at the text here. I'd like for us to do a little bit longer reading this time, verses 6 through 13. Whoever would like to take that for us, verses 6 through 13. Thank you, John. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and the fruits, and the fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their two their own kinds and trees bearing fruits in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was the evening and the morning the third day right so we talked about the fact that God is going to be kind of reversing some situations and we saw he spoke let there be light and took care of the darkness by creating light then he speaks again in verse 6, and what does he what does he speak into existence this time? It's the word that, that's used here. Firmament. A firmament or an expanse. And that that word to me was so strange. Always you think of terra firma, and this this firmament is not going to be something solid, not in the sense that we think of things that are solid. This firmament was meant to do what in verse 6? And we'll talk about what it is in a moment. What is it meant to do according to verse 6? It's a divider, yeah, it's to separate or divide against. The second time we see that idea, dividing water from water. Okay, you think about that a little bit. So, verse 7, it divides what water? What is, what is the type of division that's going on here, water-wise? Water under the firmament and the water above it. Yeah, so you've got this lower and upper water. So again, you might think terra firma, but we're going to see in a minute that, that can't be right, because God then names this firmament or this expanse and what does he call it heaven heaven so i used to think we're talking about the water table under the earth and then uh you know these rivers and, and oceans and things above the earth but that can't be this earth is not heaven in fact we're going to see earth in a minute he calls it earth so what is he talking about here he calls it heaven what what does that mean well, i think that's the first use that we talked about a minute ago that God. first word is sky this is going to be the atmosphere basically there, there is something solid about it however ask any astronaut who's ever hit against that and the friction builds up and sometimes the, the vessel explodes as it's coming back in because there is something there it's not visible and solid but it's something there about this atmosphere and it's an important something that holds life in here god is creating the biosphere here and we'll talk about all the details that go into that but he's made this place that will sustain physical life he doesn't need that <laughs> he's, he's beyond that above that or or not even a part of this but he's making this that'll sustain his physical life and so he's made this heaven the sky and there's water below it that makes sense but 
water above it? What, what in the world does that mean? How is there water above the sky? Clouds. Thank you. It's really simple, actually. We see it all the time. We just don't think about it. When those clouds are so light, we don't think about the fact, usually, that they're full of water until they turn black and then dump that water on us. But yeah, that's what we're talking about. This is really the water cycle that's being created here. He needed light and water to create that. Now he's got it. Now with that light and heat from the sun, or from well, this source of light, not the sun yet. We'll see that in a moment. And the source of light that is creating enough heat to create this water cycle that's necessary for any life on earth to happen. One of the only places that it happens in the universe that we've discovered so far, and I'm suggesting probably the only place there is, that there's this water cycle. So there's water above and water below. So God has divided these, separated these waters into these portions. And then he speaks in verse 9. The waters under the heavens, let them be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. Or let the dry appear. Literally, that word land might be in italics in yours. That doesn't even exist. There. Let the dry separate from the wet. The idea is dry land, obviously. But it's interesting that the language here doesn't really cast out the idea of a Pangea some supercontinent. I think that's really what the language is saying. This dry portion came up and then the rest of all that water around was seas. It's weird that it's in plural, but not really. The Pacific Ocean, my kids were studying recently on the globe. They're trying to find like the Indian Ocean or the Australian Sea and some bays and stuff. I never even knew the names of these things existed, but I began to look for it. And well, I, the reason I don't know it exists is because I call it the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> But then you look a little more close to a landmass, and they call it something else regionally. We do that. You know, the Atlantic is a pretty big stretch, but there's parts of it that we call Gulf of Mexico. That's really the Atlantic Ocean, isn't it? It just kind of curves around the bottom of Florida and becomes something else. Same water. So all that water is seas, and regionally they would have different kinds of names. But God's the one who determined that heaven would be called heaven. He's naming. That's part of what he does. He's giving purpose. That land would be called earth. He calls it here. And that the, all the wet would be called seeds. So he's given all of this. And what does he notice in verse nine, uh, verse 10 at the end after all of this? It was good. Yeah, <laughs> we expect that. But that's what he does. And so whenever he does anything, it is good. We talked about that a little bit before. But I want to suggest to you that's exactly what God expects from us. If we're going to be like him. Colossians 3, 16 and 17, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him. We're, we're seeking to do what is good, what is right, and we're, we're trying to do things that are going to be pleasing to God. We want to be more like him, so we have to learn who he is so we can be more like him. But he always does what is good, and he looks at it and saw that it was good. What is he doing in verses 6 through 10 in terms of those three conditions? I want you to think about that for just a second. What is God doing here? He, he cast light into darkness and, and dispelled the darkness. Verses 6 through 10, before he says it is good, he says it's good for a reason. He did something there. What has he done? What are those three conditions? Giving it form. It's giving it form. Yeah. There's now distinct land mass. There's now distinct seas. There's now distinct separation of waters above and below with that solid biosphere up there. God has just put form or order into what was disordered before. And we'll see him continue to do that on smaller scale, but he's done this amazing ordered thing here. Again, how did he do that? Speaking. When we talk about God's word, what do we call his word sometimes? Obviously it's word, but truth. Truth. What else might we call his word? Life. The word of life, yes. Think maybe less abstractly. 
When uh, think of in Exodus chapter 20, when they're at the mountain and something's handed down. Commandments. Ten commandments. Yeah. So we're getting a little more concrete. What are those? What if we're thinking militarily? Because God will call us his army or his host. The little word means army. What is it when someone who's in authority hands down commands? What do we call those? Orders. Orders. That's the word. And that's exactly what God's commands are. And I'd like for us to begin to think that way about God's commands. When he gives orders and the orders are followed, the result is order. <laughs> when he gives orders and the orders are not followed, the result is disorder. Whose fault is it? God gave orders. He's capable of maintaining his order. His word, Hebrews chapter 1, sustains the universe. He can maintain the order of the universe. In fact, that word universe in the New Testament is the word cosmos or cosmios. It's a Greek word that means order. <laughs> they watch the stars doing the same thing all the time. How ordered is that? Cosmos. <laughs> That's the word they use. And so God's one who upholds all that order. But man comes along and says, I bet I can do it better. <laughs> pretty arrogant god said this is what he wants but you know what this is what i want i can do it better than he did and what happens we fall on our face every time every time sometimes it takes a little while but we fall on our face every time and we're not going to please him and so again i want to suggest to you that when we look out into the world and we see disorder we often want to blame god now, he's not powerful enough or his word's not good enough that's wrong we need to put the blame where it belongs men said i'm not going to do it that way i don't want to do it like that so the disorder is the result of our actions. We'll see that very clearly when we get to chapter on sin in chapter 3. I mean, it just, right away. As soon as we stop doing what God said, boom, disorder comes in. And then God actually causes or allows some disorder to come to a, to a worse state than it was for our good, for our benefit. He's always doing what's good. So this idea of order, God is ordering things or ordaining. Sometimes we use that word ordained. I'm not an ordained minister. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means someone who is doing the service that God has laid out. That's literally what an ordained minister would be. I don't think that phrase ever appears in the Bible. But someone who is an ordered servant of God, which is what those two words mean, means I'm doing what God said. I want to be an ordained minister. Any of us in here could be in the sense that the Bible speaks of it, not the way the world uses that phrase. I want to do what God said. Just see what he said. And do it that I'm a servant that's ordered by God so God is creating order by the power of his word and so he's taking care of the darkness and he's taking care of the formlessness and he'll continue to do these things on a bigger scale as we go through uh, Genesis and then the rest of the, the Old and New Testament but look at verse 11 now so he's got this dry area he's got this water cycle this water above and this water below and so then he speaks again verse 11 let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit. And he begins to create a law for the first time that he speaks out to us. How is this, these herbs and this grass and these fruit trees going to produce? What is the law that he says? According to their own kind. According to their own kind. They will have the seed within themselves and they will produce according to their own kind. And he repeats it three times in this part of the text. If you had to guess how many times he's going to use this phrase when we start talking about the animals, you just had to guess in Genesis, how many times would you say he's going to use it? Seven. Yeah, seven times. Isn't that amazing? I didn't go looking for this. I just read it through. I was like, it's seven times again. This Genesis through these seven days, we're going to see a lot of that idea. And I'll point it out when we get to it in a minute. So this law, according to its kind, is the first one that he's given now. He's handed this down to creation and creation's going to follow that. And it's a law that we take for granted. In fact, we think we're so good, we can, we can change it. We take it for granted. I want you to think about the importance of this law, the order behind the law 
of the reprodu reproduction of plants. Anybody here like to eat? <laughs> I do. <laughs> How in the world would we be able to feed ourselves if we take corn and we plant it and Jimson weed comes up? <laughs> you know, randomly, there's a bunch of seeds in the corn. We throw it out. There's a pumpkin, a Jimson weed, a, you know, whatever, a stalk of something. And some of it we can eat and some we can't. On a bad day, none of it we can eat because it's just randomly going to grow. It doesn't do that, does it? It's interesting that in the Old Testament, when God is teaching his children, he'll talk about their plantations and what they can plant together and what they can't. And he's teaching them order and he's teaching them separation. You know, you've cotton in this field and your linseed in this field. And, you, and he's teaching them these basic concepts of order and of holiness. But they're going to be able to see that this seed always produces exactly the same thing. If they're mixing them together in the field, who's going to know what seed it was that created what? So you can pick them out and see that was corn and that was this. But God wants them to learn that object lesson at the youth level when they're in Israel, before they come to the deeper spiritual level in Christ. So the Old Testament has many of these object lessons. They seem kind of, why would God do that? Why wear only cotton and then, you know, only one, one type of clothing? Well, God's teaching an object lesson. Why do we teach our kids with apples and oranges when what we really mean are numbers? Well, they can fathom that. They have the object lesson to learn the deeper concept. That's what the Old Testament did. It was a schoolmaster, Galatians 3 says bring us to Christ where we can deal with the deeper concept. That's the idea here, though. This distinction, this order that God's created, and these laws that govern that. Now, we can genetically manipulate some things. You know what happens every time we do that? That thing becomes sterile. Ever heard of a seedless watermelon? What are you going to plant? Someone asked, what did they plant to get seedless watermelon? Well, they didn't plant anything. They created, they manipulated these things so the seeds wouldn't be in there, but that's the end of the generation. you got to go back to the beginning and manipulate those two things again. What you do, you get some animals that are sterile when you crossbreed them. They only have that generation. They can't then breed themselves again. You've got to go back to the original animals and breed. There are these things that happen. Men can manipulate, but men are creating. These laws that God made will govern his creation. They'll continue going forward to do that. We need to be amazed by the simplicity and yet the importance of that law. If we want to eat, we've got to make sure that the seed that we're planting is edible seed. It's interesting to me that Jesus picks up on that. This very true physical law and gives it a spiritual spiritual context in the New Testament, talking about sowing the seed of his word. If we want to grow according to what God wants, we've got to plant God's word. You can't just plant doctrines of men and then my thoughts and my ideas. It's got to be what God said. It's got to be planted in a good heart, and then what will grow out of that is a servant of the Lord in truth. So God has created order, and he's done something else now, verses 11 through 13. What else was the issue? We had darkness, we had formlessness, and void. a void, emptiness. All of a sudden, on this dry land, stuff's springing up. Life is coming up, this plant life, and it's reproducing. It's filling in that emptiness. This is what God had designed. And he's not done yet, but he begins to show us that here. He's the one taking care of all three of these situations. And so he saw that it was good, verse 12. And there was evening and morning. Now we've gone through three of these days, counting numerically 24-hour days, before there's ever a sun, moon, and stars. We're about to meet them. <laughs> this next text where we deal with this, I think is part of the key text of this particular part of Genesis, and it's one of my favorite uh, bits of the text in this whole study we'll be doing. I think you'll see why in a moment. <clears throat> but God is now taking care of those three issues, at least on the surface, and he'll begin to get deeper about it now. So let's look at verses 14 through 19. At the end, I will open up for some questions. So if you've got a question about this text, Mark it down and we'll come back to it. But I want to get through the text all at least. So 14 through 19, whoever would like to read that? I don't think so. 
Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. All right, so God speaks again. And instead of saying, let there be light, he now says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. I want you to understand that a lot of what God writes is from a human perspective. So as we're looking up through the sky, we're seeing into the second heaven, through the blue sky into the dark at night, we see the stars out there. We're looking into the heavens now, not just the heaven, we're in the heavens. So this idea is that these things will be up in that second heaven. And these lights are going to be up in the firmament of this second heaven. For what purpose? Verse 14. The first part. What's the first thing he mentions? To divide the day from night. To divide the day from... But wait a minute. Didn't he already do that? Isn't that a little bit strange? Didn't he already call the, the light day and the darkness night and divide them? He did. Isn't it strange when God does something a second time? Doesn't that seem like overkill? I think there's a reason. I think we're going to see in a moment why he's done this the second time, why he mentions it, in fact. He doesn't have to even mention it. He can just do it. But he mentions, he's revealed this to us. He wants us to learn something about himself and also about us. So I want you to hold on to that question. Why would God do something he's already done? Or why would he tell us about doing something he's already done? Why use these lights to do something he's already done? He's already divided light from dark. Why these now? So what else do we see that these are to serve a purpose for? Signs and seasons. Thank you, Grady. Uh, <laughs> I've done this study hundreds and hundreds of times. Grady's about the third person who's ever mentioned the word signs. Usually people go right to the next thing. And they'll skip the whole rest of the verse. In fact, study this with many charismatic and Pentecostal people. I just knew we're going to fixate on that word. They never do. They go right past it. And I think that's the main point of what they're for. So I'll say, wait a second, you skipped the most important one. Well, let's go back to look at signs and, and seasons and days and years. I don't have to do that because Grady is used to reading the Bible straight through the text, and so he went right to the next thing, which is perfect. Thank you for that. So let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And some people will say, well, those seasons and days and years are signs in a sense, but no, they're actually physical things that happen because of the rotation of the earth and the way the lights are. But signs, what in the world is a sign? Because usually when we got the Bible open and we mention the word sign, somebody starts talking about, it's miracles! Oh, somebody's healing, somebody's speaking in tongues, and yes, those are signs. But what does the word signs mean? If we're going to understand what signs mean when they're used, we have to know what the word meant in its original context. If I were to say to you, what is a pastor? Because we're here, you're going to say, it's a guy with a suit and tie who's walking around in church. But if I ask you somewhere else, and besides in here, you're going to say, it's a man who leads sheep around, or goats or something. That's what a pastor is. That's what the word originally meant. It was used then for a fuller context in the church teaching to be someone who was going to guide God's flock around. But that's not what the word meant. That's what it became used as. And God used it that way. That means intentional use. But what about sign? Sign's a word like that. It has a meaning. So God took that and then he applied it in a specific sense. But if we don't know what that original meaning was, we're not going to understand what this specific sense is either. And it's important that we make this distinction early on. What is a sign? What does that word mean? You can look it up if you want on Google. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Perhaps 
you know, certain times of the year, there's different stars that help them be able to determine when it's time to plant or to harvest. Those are examples of signs. Those will be things that'll signify something it's now time to do. And certainly, uh, again, we were at the planetarium, they're talking about the American Indians used the Pleiades to know where they, wherever they were in the heavens determined what time it was, plant or harvest or, so yeah. But that again is, is a use of a sign. That doesn't define what a sign is, but it, it, it's a good example. But what does the word sign mean? Once we know that, then we can say, yes, this is a sign or this is not. So what is, this, what is the word sign? Signify, signify God. You used the word sign in that, didn't you? Did. Signify, <laughs> and you're right. To signify, you said to signify God, so you used an application of it. But what does to signify mean then? Communicate. Communicate, what did you say? Indicate. Indicate, that's the word. We use a sign, we use signs all the time. One of the signs we use, we call a turn signal. It's got the word sign in it, or some people call them turn indicators. All I'm doing is indicating that I'm going to turn here. Some people don't use them at all. But you're supposed to use those. So the person behind you or that's coming this way, no, you're going to turn. It's not the sign itself that's that important. It's the message of that sign that you better know what he's talking about. So the sign itself is not that important. A stop sign. If I stop at it and then I get out and I go and I feel it, I'm oh. Who came up? What, what a what a cool thing. Somebody's going to rear in my car while I'm sitting there. It's not the sign itself. It's what it signifies. That's where people go off so much in the Bible. Because they get so fascinated with the signs themselves that they don't ever look at the message of the sign. And the message of the sign is, God's behind this. God's doing this. God revealed this. But people get so stuck on the sign that they miss the whole point. We can't afford to do that in the Bible. Now, God says that he put these lights up in the heavens for signs. And we did think of some times that God literally did that. But what we're mostly going to see eventually is that God figuratively also did that. What are some literal signs God did with, with the stars? He made a sun 93 million miles away that still heats us up. That's a pretty amazing thing. Again, that would be Psalm 19 sign. God made me. How is that even possible? It's declaring the handiwork of God. Absolutely. But what other literal signs that we see in the Bible? stars. Well, like there was a star over Jesus. Yeah, the star of Bethlehem. That was a literal star. It was a miraculous star of some sort. I mean, it really was there and then it wasn't. But the Chaldeans who studied the heavens saw that, knew what it meant, and were able to get right to where Jesus was because of it. So that was a literal star. It wasn't a, an eclipse or something, but they really happened. What other, there's a couple others you can think of, and we won't belabor this point. Can you think of something else that was literally happened that had something to do with the, the, the signs of the stars? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The long day. Yeah. The sun stood still. <laughs> we would think the earth probably stood still, but whatever. The sun was in the sky longer than it was supposed to be so they could finish this battle. That's a pretty amazing thing. There's a couple other examples similar to that. The sun going backward on the scale that, you know, Ahab, that's impossible to do, but it happened. The darkness for three hours when Christ is on the cross, people thought oh, it was an eclipse. There's this one that passed through not too long ago. It's two minutes long. And when you're at the apex of it, there's no three hours of eclipse. Yes. In Egypt, the darkness, yeah, they're very specific to a region. So there really were literal things that happened. But much more, God ends up using these things figuratively. The biggest sign you pointed to, somebody made me. You look up at the heavens, you've got to realize somebody, somebody put that there. Even when I was an atheist, it was, it was fearful. The, the word is sublime. Something so much bigger than you that you just feel afraid and small. God wants us to feel that. He wants us to understand he is 
the greatness that put all that there. Measured the heavens with the, the palm of his hand. And we, you know, the distance between stars, the distance to our own sun. Talking about Betelgeuse the other day, that if you put it on our solar system, would engulf the sun, that would Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, all the way out to, was it Jupiter? And we come all the way out to Jupiter's orbit. It's amazing. That's one star. And it's so far away. Uh, it's just unfathomable, these distances. And God did that with his palm of his hand. That's how he measured that. You know, if you ever measure something with spanning your hand, you know how many links is it across the floor or something? God does that with the heavens. So that's the first psalm. But then it shouldn't surprise us that through the Bible, this stars will often be used as signs. In the, in the Old Testament prophets, they're used so much, and people get crazy about it. You think of Joel 2, the passage in Joel 2 that's cited in Acts chapter 2 by Peter. The sun will refuse to give its light, and the stars will fall from the heaven, and the moon will turn to blood, and all the, Those are signs. They're, they're figurative signs. That's language that's used all through Isaiah, all through Joel, all through Ezekiel. It's language of judgment. And it has a simple basis behind it. Uh, I asked somebody one time this question. I'll ask you, during the daytime, are the stars out? Yes. Yes, they are. Can you see them? Do they refuse to give their light? In figurative language, yes, they do. Why? Well, you can't see them. Why? Because the sun is so much brighter that the stars are just dimmed by comparison. They refuse to give their light because they can't keep up with the light of the sun. In a poetic sense, which is how the, the, the prophets end up using that, the idea is the sun's so much brighter, the stars can't compete. And so there are times when God's coming in judgment that it says the sun will refuse to give its light because this is something done by God. He's come in judgment against a certain nation. And so the sun's gonna go out on that nation. And you know what it actually ties back to? Someone mentioned it, Egypt. <laughs> That's the idea. The Israelites know that the sun went out in Egypt right before God's judgment came. So if the prophets say, the sun's not going to shine, the moon's going to turn to blood, and all the stars are going to fall, the idea is, comes darkness on that nation. And every time it's a judgment against Babylon, against Ironside, and every time, look at the context, you see that. God's using stars to represent this idea of his kingdom overpowering the other kingdoms. In fact, oftentimes he'll use stars to represent kings themselves. The king of Babylon so often misunderstood, and uh, another one, the king of Tyre and Sidon, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the idea of Lucifer, that the word means star of the morning. It's talking about the king of Babylon. And from the perspective, if you're in Israel looking toward the morning sunrise, that's where Babylon is. So here's this king who's rising up. Do we ever use that kind of language to talk about people? Somebody's got a basketball star on his shirt right there. Michael Jordan, wasn't he a star? Or don't hurt people sometimes rising stars? Don't we have American Idol or this uh, Battle of the Stars? There's another word I was thinking of, but uh, uh, this idea of stars, we use that for somebody who's rising up and they're above us in some way. Certainly television stars and movie stars, but we understand that language. That's the same kind of idea here. And so as they're looking out toward Babylon, here's this star rising up. Well, it's, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. And God's going to put him down because he rose himself up as greater than God. Well, that word that was translated in the Vulgate was Lucifer, morning star. That became what people started calling Satan. But if you read the context, it's never talking about Satan at all. It's the king of Babylon. And so these ideas of these stars representing rulers, you remember Joseph's dream, you know, the sun and the moon are bowing down. You get all these ideas through the Old Testament. Yes, sir? Um, I, I don't know if this is still true with all the moons they discovered in the solar system, but it still might be the case that the only place in the large solar system where 
eight, this beast one sun and whatever it serves as a moon are the same size yeah. as the Earth. Yeah, I heard about that. The only place in the universe that we know of that you can actually see an eclipse is the only planet that would, that would matter to <laughs> is ours. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. There's a lot, if you begin to look at astronomy and the, and the astronomical chances of things happening that happen perfectly, you, you'd almost have to posit that there is a creator behind all this. Certainly, that's what God's telling us. All this order, all this cosmos was made by God. So as we look at this, these stars he intends to use for signs. And I, I want to challenge you as you're reading through the text, especially in the Old Testament, look at those stars when they show up. All of a sudden, it's talking about stars. Wait a second. God said those are going to be signs. Don't think of them first as literal. Sometimes they will be. The context will determine that, but especially in the prophecies. Think of those as a sign. What does that mean? What is he trying to tell me with this? And think about first what a sign is. It's pointing to something. It's not that thing that's so important. It's what is the message of that sign? So the first thing are these signs, and then seasons and days and years, and certainly since the ancients, you can observe the stars and know what the seasons are. You can know the changes, know from the Pleiades when it's time to plant or harvest or prepare yourself for winter. And then verse 15, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. So God already created light, didn't he? But now he's made these things to give light on the earth. Why would he do that? Again, it's the second time he's done this. But I want to suggest to you something here. The source of light is God himself. Light has already existed before he made these heavenly bodies that reflect light or have some sort of a lesser function of producing light, like stars. This was an issue for me uh, when I was an atheist. I've, I've said that a couple times now. I came to the Bible challenging the existence of God and began to read the Bible to kind of prove that God didn't exist. And his word convinced me that, yes, he does. But this was a challenge to me. And I would see this. And I, one of my favorite things when I was studying astronomy in college was to look up and see the Andromeda galaxy. It's 2.5 billion light years away or something. It's the farthest thing away you can see with the naked eye. You can see it on a really dark night. And I'd love to think about that thing might not even be there. Because 2.5 million years ago, that thing could have burnt out. And the light from the burnout hasn't gotten here yet. So I'm seeing something that may not even be there. And so I always thought, when you look at biblical time, People want to say that the Bible, at most, will describe an expansion of about 10,000 years, that evolution was impossible. That's just wrong. I, that thing's 2.5 billion light years away, so somebody's wrong. Well, it turns out, <laughs> the way God describes the expanse of the heavens, we don't have to believe that it took 2.5 billion light years for the light to get here. The light was already here. He made the light first. Then he stretched the heavens and put those things out at that distance. Isaiah uses that term four or five times. God stretched the expanse of the heavens. Light began with him here. Then he put the sources, the lesser sources of light out there. So there's no problem with that at all, biblically. <laughs> that was already there. So you've got these lights out there that are now giving light on the earth, and there's points of them to be, to be seen and to be measured and to see the order again, the handiwork of God. This is another sign that he's there. But then verses 16 and 17, he takes his signage idea and puts an application to it. I love this. God made two great, light, great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, he made the stars also. He set them in the firmament to rule and to give light on the earth. So how is it this idea of rule, of dominion, of, of kingship or lordship in a sense that he's talking about here with this greater light and the lesser light, obviously talking about the sun and the moon, he made the stars also. How does the sun rule over the day? We need to think about 
that word rule because we automatically think of the sun there with a scepter and he's, you know, he's banging out these orders. But how is the sun governs? That's really the word here. How's the sun govern the day? Determines its limits. Determines the limits of the day, certainly. What else does the sun allow for? <laughs> government should allow for things to, to happen. Wakes us up, allows us to move around in its light. Wakes us up from the darkness, allows us to move around, to be able to do the things that need to be done. Didn't Jesus say in John 9, let us do the works of my Father while it's day, the night is coming when no one can work? Yeah, in our society, we'll take a flashlight with us or turn on lights at, at the factory, but for them, got dark, they're laid down. <laughs> got a candle, it's going to burn out soon. Uh, Abraham Lincoln burned the candle at both ends trying to get some extra time. They'd still burn out. So, yeah, the, the sun rules the day and governs, allows us to do what needs to be done. That's really what a government is supposed to do. It's supposed to allow things to be able to function properly. The sun does that, and Jesus calls attention to that in John 9. How does the moon then govern the night? Well, there are things that have to be done at night. You may have to get up and go out to the outhouse or whatever it is. You can see enough by the moonlight. And the moon also governs in the sense of telling us what the phases of the, of the month are. The, the Jews, that became a very important counting tool. Yes, John. But even the moon is also governed by the sun because the moon reflects the sun's light. Absolutely. So there's a greater ruler and a lesser ruler. And so, again, the idea of order comes about. So I want you to think about God using this, again, as an object lesson for us. There's the sun and the moon up there that are governing over light and darkness on the earth. God sees that that's good. So think about that sign now, of the sun and the moon and light ruling. When God, when Jesus specifically, speaks of hell, there are two descriptions he uses. One of those is the one we all think of, which is, fire and brimstone and their worm never dies. What's the other? Do you remember? Darkness. Outer darkness. What is hell? It's the absence of light. God is light. God is good. It's the absolute absence of that. Anywhere here on earth, there's still a vestige of God's rule, even on the darkest night. Now there's a scene in the book of Acts where they've gone several days without seeing sun, moon, or stars. And they're despairing of even life. They're on this ship and they're going to shipwreck on the island of Malta. But you know, Paul has light because an angel of God speaks to him and gives him the revelation of God's word, which brings light, and they all survive that, that shipwreck. It's interesting, that idea of that darkness there, yet God's word shined through that. Now, hell is described then as outer darkness. There's no visible presence of, of God. There's none. God's not there. That's what hell is. It's the absence of God's presence. That's really what makes it so horrible. But think about heaven. Just talking about this, David and I. In Revelation, how is the heavenly realm described? No night there. Be no need for, for the sun or moon because the lamb is its light. Isn't that amazing? God picked up on his idea that these would be for signs, and he uses that symbology as he goes on into the New Testament. And so Jesus is the light. Doesn't he say, I'm the light of the world? So these things that are tied to God as the creator, they're fulfilled in Jesus as the sun who is also the creator. It's amazing. And so Genesis begins a thread that gets woven through the whole Bible and ends up at the very end in Revelation by a man who didn't know the man who wrote the first one. <laughs> and it's one of the proofs to me when I began to analyze the Bible text, this fingerprint of God, that there are these themes that are woven all through. There's no way men who didn't know each other, didn't speak the same language, didn't live at the same time, didn't live in the same area, would have written this story that was so cohesive. 
I studied literature and writing. That's what I was doing in college. And there, people didn't even finish their own books with the same thoughts. So it changed all through, through history. People tried to amend them and messed up. But God's word is so cohesive from the beginning to end. And we'll look at several other examples of that in these texts. It's just amazing. And it should increase your faith the more you read and see these things. So this idea then of this government of light, that's God. That's what heaven is. It's absolute truth and light and justice. All is revealed. Nothing is hidden. That's God. So God uses this idea, literally, physically, when he makes the sun, stars, and moons, object lessons, and then figuratively and, and practically in the sense of, of the heavenly realm. Let's finish our text today, verses 20 through 25. Wait a second, one other thing before we do that. This, this is why this text to me is, is the key and so important. This idea of signs. Who is it that uses signs? I don't mean who makes the signs. In this case, obviously, God did. God doesn't need signs and doesn't you know, use signs for himself. Who uses signs? Travelers, seekers, I like that. Uh, a little less abstract. The ones who govern and rule. The ones who govern and rule. So we're, we're talking around the subject, but just as concrete as possible. Mankind. Mankind. Yeah. Men use signs. Yeah, sometimes I've heard people say, well, the plants need those signs and seasons. And well, that's true. But you ever, you know, plants ever go, oh, wait a second, you know, the winter's coming, I better, no, they just naturally either respond or don't. And some will say animals, you know, it's going to be an earthquake, animals lay down, that's a sign. Well, okay, but who uses signs is man. How many men are on the earth when God puts the signs up in the sky? None. What does that tell us about God? There's well, something else that you and I were talking about that becomes visible here. He's planning. God is a God not only of order and of light and darkness and of all this. He's a God who plans ahead of time. The first day that Adam and Eve were on the earth, they saw the signs of God's existence. They saw the sun. That first evening, they saw the moon and the stars. There was never a day. They, they were without being able to see the handiwork declaring, the, the, uh, the heavens declaring the handiwork of God. Isn't that amazing to think about that? How many of us have, if we're blind, have never seen that. I mean, from early on, I was always fascinated by the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all of us are. We all are. And it's something that draws us to question, why are we here? Who are we? Who made that? I mean, I can look at my journals from childhood, and I've got questions. You know, where did the sun come from? Where These are questions we ask. Everybody. It's the human condition. We're all under these things. Mike? I'm, I'm uh, sorry to dwell on the point that you made earlier, but I, I really like it, which is, I grew up near Washington, D.C., so I didn't know what the night sky could look like, yeah. moonless night sky. So my dad was driving me back, uh, this is like 40 years ago now almost, but driving me back from college back to where I live, where we live, and uh, we had to stop on the road in West Virginia, which is why I love West Virginia. <laughs> um, no traffic. Route 50, uh, stopped by some mountains. We got out of the car, and I looked up at the night sky, and it was terrible. Yeah. And beautiful. Yeah. And awe inspiring and frightening all at the same time. So we hide. Yeah. With our city lights and so forth, we hide. You're right. Creation. You're right. In the majesty of it. Yeah, it's interesting that we create this kind of man-made light to escape from the light that God has put there to show us, to guide us to himself. 
Uh, John 3 speaks a little bit about that man hiding from the light. It's interesting that we would do that with our own lights, though. We're shining light back to kind of mask the true light coming around. That's a good, good point. But isn't that beautiful? And we all have felt that, right? It, I mean, that was really a, a deep, moving thing. But we've all felt something very similar when we just stand and stare up in the sky. And, you know, storms are frightening. We think of the power that's in those. But there's nothing quite as sublime as the word. Looking up at the night sky, realizing... But yet to God, we're going to find out in chapter 2, I am so much. <laughs> That's what's amazing about this. Let's look at verses 20 through 25. Thank you for that. And, and, and I want you to be considering this concept. God is planning all this for man before man's ever come around. He's thinking of you and me. <laughs> That's what makes this so touching. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I think about that. He's thinking of me when he did all this. But 20 through 25, who'd like to read those verses there for us? Ready? Thanks, And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. How far? It's 25. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Did you hear that? I was counting that time. Seven times in the creation of the animals according to their kinds. According to their kind. According to their kind. Evolution is not in the Bible. Certainly not. It's something that men have struggled with. They're trying to force into the Bible so they have to make these eons of days. We're certainly, by this point, we can say we're specifically in 24-hour days because we've got sun and moon by this point now. We're not talking about evolutionary time here at all. But we are talking about animals that are made according to that same law that the plants are made by because it's an efficient law. It's amazing to me the efficiency of God. You look at embryos early on, they almost all look alike. Then there becomes this dividing line when the fish embryo becomes a fish and the dog embryo and then the human. And, but they started out so efficient in design. And then they branch off into these details of their different specific need. But we should be amazed by the intelligence behind it. It's not random. There's an intelligence and efficiency that, that has created this. So God is speaking here about the waters abounding with an abundance of living creatures, all these great animals, the birds flying across the face of the heavens. And then, uh, so I love that he makes the fish and the birds on the same day. If any of you have ever seen M.C. Escher uh, paintings, and, and uh, he does these fractals and these designs, one of my favorites is of these geese flying across one way and fish coming the other way. And you think about the design of birds and fish, and, the, and even the similarities there. Where, where birds have feathers, fish have scales. Uh, birds kind of swim through the air, and fish kind of fly through the water. You know, in generic terms, you know, you have birds fly together in, in bands and fish in schools, but they're really similar. You watch the starlings turning through the, through the air sometimes. It looks like schools of minnows under the water. There's a lot of similarities. There's an efficiency in that kind of design. Now, I know they've got ostriches and penguins and other things like that. Bats, by the way, Leviticus 11, we're reading that bat is a bird in the description in the Bible. Winged animals, all it means. But the idea is there's this similarity in design, and these were made on the same day. It makes perfect sense when you think about that. Uh, and so 
God makes the fish and the birds, and he sees that that was good. He blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, so he wants this to continue going forward. And then he says to bring forth the living creature on the earth, and the creeping thing, and beast on this earth, and all this, and it was so. So God has made all of these things according to their kind. And then science comes along and says, I don't think that's right. <laughs> the more I look at things, I think there's similarities. You know, an ape and a human look alike, so really what must happen is the apes became humans. And so I'll be studying with somebody, and I'll say, do you believe that? Well, yeah. Your grandparents might have been apes, but mine were humans. <laughs> and so I want them to think about what they're really saying. So sometimes I'll do a kind of a test with them and say things like, well, let's imagine that we're trying to be scientists and we're going to group things according to their kinds. So I see two things that are striped, a zebra and a tiger. Are those things alike? Can a zebra ever give birth to a tiger just because they both have stripes? Now, hear me out. They've got four legs. They've got a tail at one end and a head sticking out at the other. They're very similar. Can one give birth to the other? And of course, no. <laughs> All right, well, how about a tiger shark give birth to a tiger? And they got the same name. <laughs> of course not. You know, that's ridiculous. And so I say, but what if given enough time? I mean, what if it took just a long, long time? Could it ever possibly happen? And so they begin to think, well, not with those things, but with other things that are similar, yes. And so they'll get eventually to monkeys giving birth to apes giving birth to, the, to whatever i don't even know how the evolutionary thing goes anymore i used to be a science a, a studier of it but i've long since given that up because it doesn't matter how much time it's never going to happen according to god's plan and in fact uh, shortly after my conversion i was in the museum of natural history in chicago and they had just finished building that great big sculpture of sue that the tyrannosaurus rex beautiful thing to see and i was in this long room that was talking about evolutionary time, and it had these encyclopedias, encyclopedias on the wall, that started with the word fox, and on the end down here it had the word modern dog. And it was, you open them up and it says, the fox is the great, 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 just repeated. And each one of those was about 100 pages or so, I mean, thick little book, with that little bitty word on every page all the way through. And you read each one. And it would just pick up where left and left until you get to the end and it would say, grandfather of the modern dog. <laughs> so it was the great, 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 and that's how many generations they said it took for a fox to evolve into the modern dog or as a cat or whatever it was, the original ancestor. And so the guy who was with me, a uh, brother in Christ, was writing down these generations and the, and the number of them. And he was looking at the wall. It said at the time, 4.6 billion years, I think you're up to 7 point something billion years now, the history of the earth. They keep changing because they need a little more geologic time for things to happen. But he wrote down all their numbers and he said, their math doesn't work out. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I want you to just take the simplest of cases here. A permutation, a, a, a mutation in genetic code that would create some kind of uh, information has never happened. But let's say it happens once every 10,000. Let's be more generous, generous once every 1,000 generations. Let's say that mutations happen that is positive. Because all the others are liabilities instead of ice assets, that's going to get eaten. If it's dragging around a wing, something's <laughs> going to eat it. But if it gets a wing that works, once every 1,000. So let's say that happens through these generations. How many years would it have taken in, the, in, the, in a cat or in a fox that can have several in a litter and a couple times a year? It would have taken way more by counting. And they give the number of how many greats it was. He said their own math doesn't work out. And they're saying it was every generation. They're not saying it was every 1,000. Even so... It's more than 7 billion at this point. Their math doesn't work out. And so they don't check themselves. <laughs> I began to see that very carefully. They come up with this hypothesis, everybody buys into it, and they don't check it because they really can't. 
There's nowhere on earth you can go see that geologic table in the rock. It's all mixed up. And it doesn't look at all like it does in the textbook where they've put this theory on paper and everybody thinks that's what they saw somewhere. They've never seen that anywhere. That's another story. But the point I want to get to is we have to trust science because science has never been wrong. The Bible, you know, that's just, that's man's, man wrote that. But science has never been wrong, right? Wrong. The earth is flat. We sail off the edge. People are bringing that back, by the way. I don't know how that came back around. But we can prove the Earth's evolved. People have been up in ships high enough to see it. I've been up high enough to see a little bit of curve of it. But the Earth is round. We know that. We know that by other ways. There's other ways to measure that before we could ever go up. I mean, scientists were already saying something. there's something wrong with that. And so some went out and tested it in their ships and came back and didn't fall off the end. So science is wrong about that. 200 years ago, if you'd said man was evolved from monkeys, people would have laughed at you. I believe in about 100 years you say that, people will laugh at you again. Science corrects itself. Science, at best, is only observing God's creation. We need to remember that. Science doesn't create. Science observes. But sometimes we're so afraid to stand up and say, that's wrong, you saw that wrong, because we've been so ground into our heads that science is right. Science is wrong a bunch. Is the Earth the center of our solar system? For centuries, for thousands of years, it was believed it was until we got really good telescopes. And wait a second, we're not moving like we're the center. The sun looks like it's the center. Now it's called the solar system instead of the earth system or whatever. So science has to correct itself as it gets better at observing. Yes, Mike. So um, one of the things our, our group studies is human error in writing software. Um, in fact, we try to measure it, model it, predict it, um, and it is really fascinating how many iterations of thought and, and review and care it takes to try to get a good model of something as complex as a human, and even then there's error. You know, there's measure, different kinds of error. Measurement error, sampling bias, selection bias. Um, it's really, really tough. A good, great example is, uh, forgive me, on smoking and lung cancer. Um, yes, there was uh, there were stakes there for certain companies, and mm -hmm. certain companies played in to put out contrary results. But, but but in actuality, it is actually difficult to understand the effect that treatment has on a particular disease because you have confounders, which are unmeasured. So is, is the response, is the improvement, is it the result of the treatment? Or is there something in nature, to use the word nature, that causes both the treat, that affects or impacts both the treatments and the disease? So example, um, sugar and diabetes. There's probably a direct, maybe there's a direct relationship there, but maybe the same thing that causes the appetite for sugar also affects um, the production of insulin. So you might think that if you just did an observation, not a randomized controlled tri trial, because that's quite difficult with humans and also human thought, it's very difficult to get a good handle on how much of an effect a given treatment has on a particular disease. Um, and and it, it takes epidemiology and, and a lot of knowledge to try to get at 
So like you were saying, science is kind of like a moving target. We're constantly refining our methods to do a better job, but it is actually very hard and it is error prone. Yeah, and all we're doing at best though is observing results and hoping we can affect them in some way. When God tells us, this is how I did it, and we can observe that and see that makes sense to me, <laughs> then when we challenge that, I don't think there's anything wrong with challenging, but when we challenge that and can't come up with a better hypothesis, then we ought to go back and trust God. God has never been wrong in the things he said. Every time he describes it a certain way, when we go back and look at it, it turns out, yeah, he was right. <laughs> I was the one whose, whose observation was wrong. I want to get into this idea a little bit more when we get in chapter three. Uh, there's a great Far Side cartoon back in the 80s and 90s, a man named Gary Larson drew these cartoons that were just fabulous, just warped sense of humor, but really, really good. And there's one where the guy's going in to order the Liberty Bell, the big crack in it, right? So you go in to order it, and the man, I think it's Bernie the bell maker in the, in the image, you look at his shelves and all his bells have cracks in it. And his sign's got a crack in it, and his window's got a crack in it, and you look, and his glasses have a crack in them. And so everything he sees has a line through it, so he makes things with a line through it because he's seeing a cracked lens worldview. Because of sin on earth, we see the world through a cracked crack lens. And when we try to analyze it only through that cracked lens, we're always going to see it wrong. The only way we can really narrow our focus and get it true is to let that lens be fixed. That's what God's word is. If we begin to analyze the world through this, we'll see it clear. As long as we say, it's got to be my way first, we're going to see that, that little crack, and we're always going to make the wrong analysis at the end because we've seen it crooked. It's impossible. We've got to take ourselves out of the equation to be able to see it the way God revealed it. And, and so otherwise, we're not going to be able to. Sin is the reason for that. And so when we begin to feel like the good God of the Bible can't say this thing or that thing about a certain group of people or a certain activity, we need to remember, we're looking at that group of people, that activity through our cracked worldview. We've got to go back to what God intended. We'll see that in our next few chapters. What did God make this world to be? What were the purposes? What were his design for things? And when did it go wrong and why? And then we'll begin to get a better handle on how we ought to be approaching service to God and our fellow man. So I hope you'll stick with me through the rest of these uh, chapters. Thank you for, for bearing with me up through this verse 25. I hope it's been encouraging for you. It's always encouraging to me to be able to do this. So I want to open for questions and answers. We've got about two minutes for that. If you've got something, a comment or a question you'd like to ask, let's try to do that quickly, and then we'll get you home. Uh, anything you'd like to ask or, or add this evening? If not, we'll give some time tomorrow to talk about these things. Great. Thank you so very much.